Hello everyone and Namaskar. Today's podcast is a reading of the book titled Ananda Murti, The Jamalpur Years. And this book was obviously not written by Pierre Sarkar. This book is uh, was put together by Brother Devashish. And today I'll be reading the preface and the first chapter of the book. There's actually um, 33 chapters in the book, plus an epilogue. Preface. One day in 1969, a small group of disciples got together with the idea of writing a biography of their guru, Sri Sri Anandamurti, whom they affectionately called Baba. When they sat down and started writing, however, they realized how little they really knew about his life. So they decided to approach him and request him to write his autobiography. At first, Baba refused, protesting that he had no time for such things. But after repeated supplications, he finally acquiesced to their pleas. The next day, at the regular Sunday gathering, the same disciples were surprised when Baba announced that he had finished his autobiography. Do you want to see it? he asked. His curious devotees looked at one another, wondering how he could have possibly finished it so quickly. Even at the tremendous speed with which the master customarily worked, Baba called them over to his cot and handed them a sheet of paper. On it they found a single sentence written out in longhand. I was a mystery. I am a mystery. And I shall always remain a mystery. This was typical of Anandamurti, who throughout his life insisted on staying out of the public eye so that he could concentrate on his work. The establishment of a global mission for spiritual elevation and social change. In his earlier years, he would often say that he did not want a cult of personality, but rather a cult of ideology. True to his word, he took great pains to deflect the attention of his followers from the Guru worship that had become so deeply rooted over more than 70 centuries of Indian cultural history. Indeed, he was a spiritual master unlike any who had gone before him on the Indian subcontinent. As much a social revolutionary, as a spiritual guru. He did not allow his disciples to simply enjoy his company while they practiced meditation in a search for spiritual enlightenment. He entrusted to them a social mission, and he would not allow anything to distract them from that mission, not even their understandable fascination with his own person. How then does one begin to reveal the mystery of who he was when he went to such pains to conceal himself? The obvious answer is that one does not. Anandamurti left no testament of his inner experience, no hints at what lay behind the gaze that so enchanted his disciples, no real way of knowing who he was, other than through discovering who we ourselves truly are. What he did leave, however, was his imprint on the lives of so many thousands of people, the impact of which still continues to reverberate throughout our planet. This biography, then, is the story of Anandamurti as seen through the eyes of those who knew him, his disciples, family, friends, and colleagues, in the hope that through that open window, the reader may be able to catch a glimpse of the man standing behind it. In one of his messages to his disciples, Anandamurti said, I have merged myself in my mission. If you wish to know me, then serve my mission. Indeed, it is in many ways impossible to separate Anandamurti from his missionary endeavors and the ideology he left behind. 
His life was a reflection of his ideology, and there is no better example of the ideological principles meant to guide human beings in their lives than the life of the spiritual master who embodied those principles. I will go so far as to claim that the inverse of his oft-repeated message is equally true. If you want to know the mission, then try to know the life of the master who embodied its spirit with every breath he took. A note of thanks. The information contained in this book was primarily drawn from the oral histories of Anandamurti's colleagues, friends, family, and disciples, as well as from various written sources published during and after his lifetime. Most of it has been recast in narrative form, interspersed here and there with passages quoted directly from the interviews. I would like to thank all of the several thousand people, too numerous to thank individually, who sat patiently for these interviews and shared their reminiscences. Some of what they shared was personal and for that reason was kept out of this book. Other material was left out for lack of space, but all of it has been faithfully preserved for future generations. I hope they are aware of the incalculable value of their contribution and how much it is appreciated. Part 1. An Old Soul The future of humanity is not dark. I have this faith. Human beings will seek and one day realize that inextinguishable flame that remains ever burning behind the veil of darkness. I am in my mother's womb. From there itself, I can see my mother. I recognize her so well. I see my father, my sister, and my other relations. How well I know them. I know their names also. I am born. Normally children weep at birth. I don't. I am all smiles. In fact, I am happy to be born. I want to address the people around me by their names, because I know them so well. But alas, how incapacitated I am. My vocal cords do not permit me to speak yet. They want to feed me. They have put a piece of cotton in a cup containing milk. Drop by drop, they drop milk from the cotton into my mouth. How silly are these people? Am I a child to be fed in this manner? I shall drink from the cup, not the cotton. I protest and raise my hand to hold the cup. They are taken aback at what I have done. I realize that I have done much to perplex them, and I return to being a newborn child. Anandamurti's earliest memories, as recounted to Amitananda in the winter of 1969 in Ranchi. Outside the house of Lakshmi Narayana Sarkar and his wife, Avarani Devi, the small town of Jamalpur was springing to life at the beginning of a hot summer day, May 11, 1922. Temperatures were expected to reach 40 degrees Celsius in the shade. Hence, most of the town's inhabitants were already busy taking advantage of the cool morning air to accomplish as much as they could before walking through the dry, scorching streets became a chore best avoided. Here and there, the town's few Buddhists were busy with their worship on this, the most important day of their year the full moon in the month of Vaishak, commemorating the birth of the Buddha. A few hundred kilometers away in the town of Bodhgaya, site of the Buddha's enlightenment, pilgrims from around the world were burning incense and chanting mantras to celebrate the birth of the enlightened one with the rising of the sun. Inside the modest three-room house, tucked into a small plot on a side street of the main Keshavpur road, 
the family of Bengali immigrants, together with visiting relatives, had been busy for hours, preparing for the birth of the couple's fourth child. They were all hoping for a son, most of all, Lakshmi Narayana. Several days earlier, he had had a vision that his wife would finally give birth to the male heir he had long hoped for, so important in the Hindu tradition. And he was sure that his vision had been a true foretelling. His family had already endured its share of sorrowful births. His second daughter had died when she was two and a half. His third child, a boy, had died in childbirth. Only his oldest daughter, Hiraprabha, had survived. A gentle, quick-witted seven-year-old who was already showing the talent for music that will give her parents many hours of happiness in the years to come. This birth, the vision had promised, would be different. He would have a son who would survive him and make him proud, and he was eager to see his wish come true. Avarani Devi's contractions had begun late in the evening, light but steady. As the first rays of dawn began to appear through the open windows, the female members of the family gathered around her bed in anticipation, just as thousands of pilgrims in distant Bodhgaya began to blow on conch shells and place offerings before images of the Buddha. At seven minutes past six, with the two elderly matriarchs of the family assisting, the grandmothers Indumati Mitra and Bina Pani Sarkar, a ruddy-cheeked infant boy, was born, the scarlet rays of the rising sun reflecting on his body through the open windows. In keeping with the family tradition, Indomati held a silver cup with fresh milk. She dipped some cotton into it and began to feed the baby drop by drop. To the surprise of everyone, the newborn infant reached out his hand and grabbed the cup, as if trying to drink it directly from it. Veenapani gasped and exclaimed, He's not a baby. He's a burha, an old soul. From then on, whenever she saw her favorite grandchild, she would call him Burha, fondly recalling that unusual moment. Later that morning, Lakshmi Narayana, a devout Hindu, who would frequently host religious discussions in his house with the local pundits and visiting holy men, invited some astrologers to his home to prepare the boy's horoscope. By common consent, they named the child Prabhat Ranjan, after the rising sun with which he was born and in keeping with the horoscope, which foretold an illustrious future for the newborn infant. The reading they gave for the family members, however, was contradictory and puzzling. The chart foretold that the boy's name will become known throughout the world, bringing great fame to his father and family. But it also showed that he would have little to do with them. He would have the qualities of a king, but he would pass his life like a sadhu, a spiritual renunciate spending all his time with monks and yogis. The astrologer's reading greatly disturbed Lakshmi Narayana. There was a troubling history in his father's family of male members renouncing the world to become wandering ascetics, and he did not wish to see his eldest son and heir become a monk. After due thought, he decided to burn the horoscope. He banned any discussion of it among his family and friends despite the fact that he can read the portents in the boy's chart almost as ably as the astrologers could, and had always trusted the accuracy of this ancient Hindu art. Still, he would not fan the flames of an unwelcome future if he could help it. The family would heed his wishes until well after his death, when it became clear 
that the astrologers had correctly foretold the boy's future. The incident with the cup, however, passed into family lore. The elders of the family never tired of recalling how the infant Prabhat had tried to drink directly from the cup only moments after his birth. Other unusual experiences would soon be added to the list of favorite family stories. During his first year, Prabhat was painfully conscious of not being able to walk. His unresponsive body forcing him to crawl in order to move around, his elbows and knees full of aches and pains. Yet whenever he became dejected, wondering how much longer he would be forced to suffer such indignities, he would hear a voice speaking clearly into his ears, consoling him. Some days more, just a few days more. I know you are in trouble, but just a few days more. He would look around, wondering who was talking to him, but there was never anyone to be seen. As he learned to walk and became more comfortable with his body, the voice became less frequent and finally disappeared. But he never forgot the comfort it gave him. Late one night, when the two-year-old Prabhat was sleeping by his mother's side, he woke up to find the space around him filled with a sweet and soothing effulgence. A sense of rapture carried him away until he lost all sense of where he was. A few nights later, he woke up again and saw a multitude of different creatures streaming out of his left ear. The fascinated boy sat up on the bed and watched as they danced about the room. But when they crowded next to his other ear and started entering back in, it seemed so fearsome that he gave a shout and grabbed hold of his mother. As she rubbed her confused and sleepy eyes, he began describing the host of creatures he had witnessed coming out of his ear. Reptiles, mammals, birds, insects, human beings. Abarani consoled him that it was only a dream and told him to go back to sleep. But the same dream repeated itself over and over again in the days and weeks that followed. Sometimes the boy would wake his mother up and warn her to beware of the creatures, as if he were still seeing them dancing around him in the room. Abarani marveled at the scope of her son's overactive imagination. She wondered if the child might have seen pictures of those creatures, though there was no such book in the house. At other times, he would see stars, planets, and galaxies streaming out of his ear instead of living creatures. As the dreams continued, they gave her cause for concern. Sometimes she would complain to her husband and other relatives and friends that her boy was a weakling who was frightened by nightmares. At other times, she would joke with them that it seemed like the whole universe was coming out of one ear and into the other. But as time went on, she started searching for other explanations. She even took him to several tantrics to see if they could use their occult arts to tell her what was going on with her son. But none of their explanations were enough to satisfy her. Other strange dreams followed. One morning, Prabhat told his mother that during the night, he had seen a far-off village on fire and a group of sannyasis running away from it. When news reached her of the fire and the sannyasis a couple days later, she realized that what her son had seen had not been a mere dream, but a vision. This helped to fuel her growing conviction that the boy she had given birth to was no ordinary child. One day she got in an argument with her mother-in-law, Vinapani Sarkar, over something that had happened a few years earlier. The argument stalled briefly while both of them struggled to recall exactly what had taken place that day. Ravad helped to jog their memory. I remember that incident, he told them matter-of-factly. He then reminded them of the details they had forgotten. How do you know that? his astonished grandmother asked him. 
You were not even born then. I know, that's all, was his laconic reply. Abarani simply smiled. In the years to come, whenever one of her other children would ask her a question she could not answer, she would say, Ask Bubu. He knows everything. Whatever I don't know, he knows. By this time, Prabhat was already becoming quite independent, despite his tender age. As a toddler, he had been rather mischievous, sometimes exasperating his mother to the point that she would run after him, intent on spanking him to teach him a lesson. The light-footed Prabhat invariably scampered away and stayed out of his somewhat portly mother's reach until she calmed down. Then he would snuggle up to her, and she would take him on her lap, all forgiven. But as he grew older, his restless nature gradually settled. He began to spend most of his time outside, exploring the neighborhood, or playing with his friends. He had by then developed an attraction for the stories of Shiva, father of the yogis, that he would hear from his parents and relatives. He especially loved the colorful descriptions of the great gods' magnanimity and detachment. Though he knew little of religion and rituals, he obtained a Shiva Lingam, and each morning before breakfast, he would bathe it while reciting whatever mantras he had heard his elders using and then placing it on a brass plate. Once he got the Lingam straight, he would consider it a sign that Shiva had accepted his worship. From time to time, Pravat would sit and watch a group of mendicants who gathered regularly on a nearby hillock to chant devotional hymns in a circle around a holy fire. Many townspeople, with the natural reverence for wandering monks that was common in those days, would also join in the chanting. While Pravat enjoyed listening to the mendicants' hymns in praise of Shiva, he found the mendicants themselves less than appealing. He disliked the habit of smoking hemp in pipes. With the quick eyes of a child, he noticed how their minds seemed to be more on the delicious foods the pious townsfolk would bring for them than on their meditation. One day to test them, he stole up to the edge of the circle while they were meditating and silently snatched some sweets that an old woman had left for them. Several of them jumped up from their meditation and started to give chase, but Pravar had already mapped out his escape, up a nearby alley and down behind some public latrines where he knew the caste-conscious monks would never follow. After that, he lost whatever illusions about the monks he might have had and would annoy them whenever he had a chance. Around this time, another recurring dream began. One night, he dreamt that he was in the midst of a powerful storm. The storm lifted him up and carried him through the air until it dropped him rudely on a wide sandbank by the edge of the river Ganges. Filling his eyes and mouth with sand, he wiped the sand out of his eyes, and when he opened them, he saw a mendicant standing in front of him with a trident in his hand. The mendicant began reciting a long mantra. Then he asked Pravat to repeat the mantra after him. No, Pravat shouted. Recite it, my son, the mendicant insisted. It will be good for you. No, under no circumstances shall I recite it. The mendicant lifted his trident. You will have to recite it. No, never. I will never recite it. At that moment, the storm arose again and lifted him up into the air. It carried him away and dropped him back onto his own bed, at which point he awoke. He realized, then, that it had been just a dream, but the incident remained fresh in his mind for the rest of the morning. 
For 20 consecutive nights, Prabhat had the same dream. Soon he had memorized the mantra, not because he had made any effort to do so, but simply because he had heard it so often. In the meantime, however, the boy began to feel a sense of desperation. He considered it a matter of disgrace that every night the mendicant scared him by menacing him with his trident, and yet he had done nothing about it. Finally, he resolved that if he had the same dream again that night, he would put an end to the charade. The dream unfolded again, exactly as it had the previous twenty nights, but this time, when the mendicant brandished his trident and warned the boy that he would have to recite the mantra, Pravat snatched the trident and threw it at him. He heard a loud thwack. When he looked, the mendicant was gone. In his place stood a stone statue of Shiva. The sound he had heard had been the sound of the trident, rebounding off the statue. There was a smile etched on the statue's face, and Pravat felt that Shiva was smiling joyfully at him. At that moment, the dream broke, and Prabhat found himself in his bed, perspiring. The dream did not return again. Prabhat told the story to his sister, who as usual was fascinated by her brother's colorful dreams. By this time, it was only a few days until Shiva Shaturdasi, the foremost Shiva festival in the Hindu calendar. Unmarried Hindu girls traditionally fast on this day in the hope that their fast will induce Shiva to find them a noble bridegroom. Hiraprabha, by then nearly twenty, also decided to fast, in keeping with the tradition. Remembering her brother's dream, she suggested that he fast as well, and he happily agreed. That evening, the family visited the nearby Shiva temple to perform the traditional worship. When it was Pravat's turn, he stood in front of the idol and poured water over the Shiva Lingam, as prescribed in the ritual. As he did, he started reciting loudly the mantra he had heard in his dream. Dhyayanityam Mahesham Rajata Giri Nibam Charu Chandra Vatansam Ratna Kalpo Jivalangam Parashu Mirga Varabiti Hastam Prasanam Padma Sinam Samantam Tutta Mama Raga Gandervya Raktim Asana Vishwadyam Vishwabijam Nikila Vaya Haram Pancha Bhaktram Trinetram One should meditate constantly on Maheshwara, radiant like a silver mountain, adorned with the lovely moon, whose limbs are bright like the splendor of jewels, axe in hand, protector of animals, bestower of boons, the ever-blissful one, seated in lotus posture, wearing a tiger skin, worshipped by the gods, the seed and cause of the universe, who removes the boundless fears, the one with five faces and three eyes. The local priest was astonished. He went up to Lakshmi Narayana and congratulated him enthusiastically. You must be commended for teaching your son such a difficult and important mantra. I can scarcely believe my ears to hear such a young child reciting the Dhyan Mantra of Shiva. An equally surprised Lakshmi Narayana had to profess ignorance. It was only when he asked Prabhat about it that he discovered how he had learned the mantra. Due to this incident, Prabhat's parents became convinced that there was a special bond between their boy and the god Shiva. For the next few years, they made sure that Prabhat observed the traditional Shivaratri worship, including the recitation of the sacred mantra that he had learned in his dream. The story of Prabhat reciting that difficult and little-known mantra as a child was another that would pass into family lore often repeated by his neighbors during the coming years 
whenever anyone would ask him about the Sarkar's unusual son. Thank you.